asking what happened to Philippians, right? Yes, I see people shaking your head. Well, um, we're not going to be continuing to Philippians, Lord willing, we'll be back in Philippians next week, but um, sometimes as a pastor, I need to um, respond to things that affect the people of God when they're immediate, and this is one of those times uh, this morning is, so last night, um, and it hadn't happened a whole lot here in the last almost 12 years that we've been here, I got one of those phone calls that pastors get early in the morning, and uh, this one came from Melissa Keir. And uh, I don't know, it was between 12 and 1 a.m. And um, John Ellett answered the phone. And so Danny uh, had taken Davin, their 15-year-old, to the emergency room because he had been sick all week and was having a hard time recovering from that. They were treating the symptoms, and he just wasn't getting better. So they took him to get him some antibiotics. And um, through some tests that they did... Um, the initial diagnosis that came back to Danny was that Daphne had leukemia. So they transported to Texas Children's um, last night in the middle of the night and uh, I've been in contact with Danny all the morning and uh, um, so things are better. They don't think he has leukemia, um, which is good. Um, but they're still um, they're going to be doing a biopsy on his um, spleen because his spleen is twice the size it should be. His liver is inflamed, and these are things that can lead to possible kind of blood cancers. And and the, the, he, they're still uh, not out of the woods. They're still very concerned. The doctor's very concerned that a 15-year-old boy would have these symptoms and. They can't figure out right now what that is, and obviously Danny and Melissa are still concerned, as any. As any parent would be. And I thought last night as I was laying in bed, you know, just praying, um, how would I respond if I heard that news about my kids? That also was possible. Daphne is one of our kids. If you're visiting us this morning, just um, with us this morning, and you come back, these tears will probably happen again. It's just the way God's made me. Um, big and tough on the outside and soft on the inside, I guess. Um, so I didn't think in light of that. And as I was praying last night and that... Um, it'd be appropriate for me to say turn to Philippians chapter 3. Um, instead, I believe it's important for us to be reminded of biblical perspective when we get news like that. And right now, they don't really know what's going on, although there's still a great concern there. And there's um, going to be more tests and see what's going on. So I just didn't feel it was the right thing for me to ignore this situation in our body and move on in Philippians. Although we love to do verse by verse through books of the Bible um, and that's good we, we should do that but boy, when something like this comes up I don't want to miss it I don't want to miss us to miss what God wants to learn us to learn through this and to teach us through this I don't want to miss it and what I'm going to say this morning may not be new news to anybody in here but you know we need to be reminded 
of truth uh, that we often forget. And that's why I love First and Second Peter. And I've mentioned this before, that Peter uses the word remember and remind over and over and over again. There's one guy who forgot, didn't he? In the midst of great trial and, and possible persecution when Jesus was being taken away, G- Peter denied him three times. And I think Peter was soft to that. And he wrote those two epistles with those things in mind, that we need to be reminded of truth in the midst of possible adversity and difficulty and, and tragedy. Um, and especially uh, when you hear about a 15-year-old healthy young man, um, and they, it was so bad that they thought it was leukemia. Um, so, uh, so with that, I want to dismiss our children now because I want the adults to work with them to be able to hear that, and uh, then we'll pray and um, move on here together. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, um, we are so thankful that you hear our prayers. Lord, we are so thankful that you sent your son to die in our place. And Lord, uh, that the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, that we could approach your throne of grace to find help and grace and mercy in time of need. And Lord, that's every moment of our life. But Lord, when we're faced with um, things that are surprising and difficult, Lord, that's the greatest comfort that we have, that we know that we can come and cry out to you and that you listen. So, Lord, we lift up the cures to you. and Lord, we uh, don't know, you do, but we don't know what's going on. Uh, we pray you grant the doctors great wisdom as they continue to do tests and this biopsy and we'll figure out what this is Lord but we, we would pray that you would um, in your grace and your mercy would heal Davin of whatever this is Lord, we also understand sometimes uh, you choose not to heal um, for whatever reason but Lord, we trust you in that so Lord, we pray you would be glorified no matter what happens Lord, bring Danny and Melissa great comfort Um, and strength I know they're tired they're emotionally and physically spent so Lord uh, lift them up encourage them may they find their hope in you Lord as we uh, as a family and as a local body that is a family Lord I pray that you would uh, empower us to love on our family members who are hurting uh, specifically the cures encourage them pray for them meet the needs that they may have Lord, we uh, pray to you not as those who have no hope but those who have great hope and trust that Lord you are at work would help us see you in this Help us trust you through this. And know, Lord, as we we turn uh, to our time together in your word, Lord, we pray you would speak to us deeply. Meet us where we are. Uh, Remind us 
of who you are. And Lord, grow our faith. Help us trust you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just bear with me, all right? Thanks. I should just use my arm, but that will work too. Thanks. Yeah, you're right. I do. I've been sweating the last few times I've worn a coat, so this summer. Well, obviously the Cure family is in a storm, aren't they? Um, and because they're part of our family here at Grace, we're in a storm. And we're called to walk through that storm with them. And many of us here have walked through storms very similar to that. Maybe different, but all of us have most likely walked through some kind of storm. Uh, some difficulty in our life. Uh, stor- storms of extreme loss or pain uh, that may have brought despair to our lives. Uh, we've lost people that we've loved to death. Uh, we've uh, lost a job. We've had to work through a serious illness. Um, maybe your marriage is struggling. Maybe you have a rebellious child at home. Uh, maybe you feel like everyone's against you. Uh, whatever it might be, uh, there's storms uh, that come to our life, and we, we, we find ourselves in those storms often. Uh, and if you're young here this morning, you're thinking, okay, what storm have I gone through? What storm am I going through? And, and it, doesn't, it seems to, to pale in comparison when we talk about uh, what's going on with Davin right now or maybe other storms that you think of. And, um, and I would just say to you, if you're young here this morning and can't think of a storm, hold on, it's coming. It'll come. And uh, I want us all to be prepared and, um, and be reminded of what God teaches about storms, about difficulties, about how we handle them, about where we look, what we do. Um, many of you here are maybe walking through a storm right now, not just the cures, but you're working through some kind of storm. And, and you're weary, you're weak, you're worn, as the old hymn writer says. Uh, whatever your storm is here this morning, though, you can know that Jesus is in the storm with you. You can know that for sure. Um, the Kiers know this. I know that. I've talked to them on the phone. And they know that. Um, and that's where they find in their hope and their strength and the ability to walk on and move and um, keep going and encourage Davin and through all this. Uh, and the Lord wants to bring hope. He wants to bring encouragement um, in the midst of the storms that we have. And he wants to do that this morning. And he specifically wants to do that through... Uh, John 6 this morning. Now, as I thought and prayed about this last night as I was awake, and actually John Ellen Brittany went up to um, uh, Houston last night with Melissa because she was in no uh, condition to drive, and Danny drove up and went up in the ambulance with them, and they took a car up for them so they had one there and came back. So I was also concerned about my wife and Brittany traveling back and forth from Houston in the middle of the night. And um, so just all these things in my mind, and I just began to pray, Lord, what, how do I, what do I, what do, where do I go? And I thought about Job. That would be a good place to go and um, thought about other passages. But maybe just because this is at least uh, pretty fresh on my mind. I, it's been about two years that I taught on this passage in John as we taught through John. I, this just jumped in my head and it really ministered to me then when I talked through it before. And, and I want to just revisit John chapter 6. And we have this familiar account of Jesus walking on the water in the midst of the storm that these, these disciples find themselves in. 
Uh, and so what I'm going to do, I'm going to walk down through these verses and just explain what's going on here. I'm going to tie in the other gospel accounts, which give us a fuller picture of what happens here in this account of Jesus walking on the water in the midst of the storm. Uh, I'm, I'm going to do that, come help us understand what's going on and what Jesus is trying to get across to uh, his disciples, to the original readers of John. And then I'm going to come back then and give us just seven uh, practical ways that we can put this into practice um, knowing that Jesus is in the midst of our storm. So let's begin. I want to answer this question. Uh, for whom does Jesus perform this miracle? Who, who is his audience? Uh, is it the disciples or is it the people uh, Jesus withdrew himself from in verse 15? So in the verse 15, this is after that he is fed the 5,000, which most likely like the 20,000 because of women and children. He's an amazing miracle. And at the end of that, and they want to make him king. And in verse 15, it says, Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So, um, who was this intended for? Was it those people? Was it the original 12? Well, the fact is, the only people who saw this miracle were the original 12 disciples. These thousands of people didn't see this miracle. They weren't on uh, the Sea of Galilee. They weren't uh, there to see it. So it's obviously he intended this miracle to teach these 12 men something. So it's important that we see that. So well, what is the reason? What, what, what is he trying to teach them through this walking on the water in the midst of the storm? Well, the, contents, the context of this miracle um, helps us understand. It's the key to understanding uh, that question, understanding what Jesus is trying to teach them. Uh, again, th- this happens right off the height of Jesus' popularity. I mean, 20,000 people now. And they want to make him king. Th- that's where the beginning of the chapter... Um, be- st- that's where we have in the beginning of the chapter. We've got 20,000. Uh, but it didn't stay 20,000. Uh, Jesus didn't want to let, let them make him become king. Uh, and at the same crowd... Well, after this, this private miracle of disciples, they'll come searching for Jesus on the other side of Gal- the Sea of Galilee. And what happens is Jesus turns them away. He says, the only reason you're coming to me is because I fed you and you want more food. They're looking at the physical. And Jesus really rebukes them. And then he, he goes through this whole passage of Scripture to, to teach them what it takes and what it means to follow Jesus. And it wasn't what they thought. It wasn't, hey, we're going to conquer Rome. We're going to have all these great things come to us. He's going to give us all this food. It's going to be wonderful. It wasn't that at all. So at the end of the chapter, there's not 20,000. There's 12. So Jesus grows the church from 20,000 to 12. Anybody ever written a book on that? No, you don't write a book on how you grow the the church from 20,000 to 12. That's exactly what happened. So we look at this and we look at, at, at what's happening. We look at chapter 6, verse 67, and they're all gone. They, they've all walked away. And, and, and at this, Jesus turns to the 12 and he says to them, look at verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? So he's given the opportunity. He's given them an out. You, you don't want to go away with the other 20,000 that left. To which Peter says, in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed, 
and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now what would cause Peter to say this? What would, in the midst of going from 20,000 to 12 and everybody's against them now, what would cause Peter to make that statement? I believe it's what happened on the water. I believe it's what happened in the midst of the storm that Jesus taught them that he was able to say, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe that you're the Holy One of Israel. And that's why I want us to look at this passage this morning. Because I believe that God, through, through Christ, uh, was teaching these 12 men and preparing them for what was going to come. What was going to come not only in this immediate context of going from 20,000, everybody loves you, to going to 12 where everybody hates you. Would you say that's a storm? You bet it's a storm. So he was preparing them for the end of chapter 6. And not only that, it's going to get worse. And if, as we went through Gospel of John, did it get better? No, it didn't get better. It got worse. The persecution, the difficulty in their life. We know from the book of Acts, it got more difficult for these guys. All of them died uh, a martyr death, the tradition holds, except for John, who wrote this book, who was exiled to the island of Patmos and died in exile. So it didn't get better. And he's preparing them to deal with the storms in their life. Do you see that? See the context? See the purpose of this miracle? And so they would be prepared. And that's why Peter could say this. So let me read these verses 16 through 21 of this account of um, Jesus walking on the water. Most people call it Jesus in the midst of the storm. So verse 16. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now Matthew and Mark also record this miracle in their Gospels, and we're going to refer, as I mentioned, to, to their accounts as well to help us see the big picture here of of what happens. The first thing I want to point out is something we get from Matthew and Mark's uh, account of this miracle. Notice what Matthew records in, John, in Matthew 14, 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. Notice that it says Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. He made them get in. exactly how he did that I don't know it doesn't say but he made them get in the boat it didn't seem like it was an option Jesus says get in the boat and they got in the boat and, and there's a, it was, there's a, a sense of strength and urgency here and, and John records that they got on the boat but Matthew tells us why so John says they got in the boat but Matthew says they got in because Jesus made them get in now remember uh, just, just think about this just rem- with me remember Jesus is God in the flesh he made them go out in this boat knowing that a storm was coming don't miss that Jesus made them get into the boat knowing that a storm was coming we already know he does this for an important reason right we've seen the end of the chapter Uh, he's preparing them to face life storms 
Now after they got into the boat and going across the Sea of Galilee, notice again what happens in verse 18 of, of John 6 here. It says, The sea began to be stirred up because of a strong wind was blowing. So a storm pops up. Matthew tells us the storm was so strong that the boat was battered by the waves for the wind was contrary. I love that. It was contrary. It was adverse. It was a serious wind. So just how bad was this storm uh, that seemingly popped up out of nowhere? Well, look at verse 16 um, with me again. Now when evening came, all right, now this is going to give us a time setting, and I don't want us to miss this time sequence that happens because it's important to see how strong the storm was. So when evening came, and the word evening here refers to the second evening, twilight. Uh, it's between the evenings. It's between the hours of 6 and 9 p.m. That's what this word means, between 6 and 9 p.m. That's when they got in the boat and began their journey. In Mark's account, we find out that this storm came during the fourth watch of the night which is between 3 and 6 a.m. Okay, they got in the boat between 6 and 9 p.m. The storm pops up between 3 and 6 a.m. Or it's, 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 it's going on during this time. Verse 19 here in John 6 says that the storm came when they had rowed 3 to 4 miles. Some of your translations say 25 to 30 furlongs, 3 to 3 and a half miles, All right, between 3 and 4 miles. Now think about this one. Based on the information that we have in all the Gospels, the storm and the accompanying wind are so strong, it took the disciples between 6 and 12 hours to row 3 to 4 miles. Between 6 and 12, even if it was just 6 hours, that's an awful long time to take you to row 3 to 4 miles. It shouldn't take you 6 hours to row that long. It shouldn't take you 12 hours to row that short of a distance in, 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 in relation to the time that they were rowing. And this is why Mark's, I love Mark's gospel says this, they were straining at the oars. Yeah, I would say they were straining. This was a serious storm. Uh, you, you may know that, 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 I don't get to do this as much as I'd like to, but I like to cycle. When I mean cycle, I'm not talking about motorcycles. That's, that, that's called bikers, right? I was a, I'm a cyclist, and that doesn't mean fat tires. It means little skinny tires with the little skinny frames. It's probably hard for some of you to imagine me getting on one of those things. But I really enjoy that. and just don't have the time to do that as much as I'd like to. But here where we live, it's kind of flat. The only hills are the overpasses. There's not a whole lot of trees, and there's a really strong wind. Now, if you get that wind behind you, I mean, you feel like you could win the Tour de France. You can run out of gears. You can get going so fast. You can get on the flat. If, you're, if I was in good shape, I can get, get going over 40 miles an hour on the flat. And then run out of gears. I'm just going like this. That's how strong the wind is. Now imagine turning around and riding into that same kind of wind. I mean, I felt sometimes like I was in a stationary bike. I'm going nowhere. Right? But that pales in comparison to how intense the wind and the storm was that these guys were in. They probably felt like they were going nowhere. To row that hard. And these guys were fishermen. They were pretty stout. They weren't non-athletic or in, in weak physically. They were, they were strong men. And they were going after it that long. That's how intense this storm was. Now, now the Sea of Galilee was known for strong storms. Listen, listen to one person's description about these storms. The Sea of Galilee lies nearly 700 feet below sea level in the Jordan Rift while the surrounding hills rise abruptly about 2,000 feet above sea level. 
The sharp drop-off nearly 3,000 feet from the tops of the hills to the surface of the lake creates ideal conditions for sudden, violent storms for which the Sea of Galilee is notorious. The cooler air rushes down the slopes and strikes the surface of the lake with great force, churning the waters into white caps and creating dangerous conditions for small boats. The disciples found themselves in the midst of one of these notorious storms. Big storm equaled big trouble for the disciples. They were obviously exhausted, obviously, at this, at this point, and, and more, most likely wondered if they were ever going to get to the other side. You, you ever felt like that? You ever been exhausted? You ever just been going, rowing along, I mean, just going at it in life? And you're wondering, am I ever going to get there? Physically, that's where they were in the midst of this storm. And, and think about this with me. If they had not obeyed Jesus and got in the boat, they would have never been in this situation. Their arms wouldn't be burning. Their lungs wouldn't be burning. They wouldn't be so weary and so discouraged that they're never going to get to the other side if they would not have obeyed Jesus and gotten in the boat. If they would have said, you know, we're not getting in the boat, they wouldn't have had to gone through that, would they? Uh, let me say this. Just a little side note here. Obeying Jesus does not always mean there will be smooth sailing. And we cannot forget that. Obeying Jesus does not always mean there will be smooth sailing. Sometimes it gets more difficult. So we see the disciples are in big trouble in a big storm. So where is Jesus when they find themselves in this trouble? Well, where's Jesus? He sends them off in this boat, knowing the storm's coming. They're rowing like mad for all these hours. Seems like they're going nowhere. Where is Jesus? Well, the last time we saw Jesus, he was, and, and Mark tells us, he sent them off and he went up on a mountain in Mark 6.46 and he's praying. I wonder what Jesus was praying. I believe the context of all the, of, the, of the gospel accounts of this is that he's, his prayers included the disciples. After all, he had sent them out into the storm. And we know the end of chapter 6 of what he's trying to teach them. So that, that Peter can say, I believe that you're the Lord, you're, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God, you're the Holy One of Israel. I believe he's praying for the disciples. He had not forgotten about them. Instead, he was praying deeply for them. And now look what happens in the midst of the storm in verse 19. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. So at just the right time, when the storm looked as if it was going to engulf the disciples, Jesus shows up. Isn't that good news? I guarantee it was good news for these guys in the midst of the storm. In the midst of the storm, the disciples had been making little, little, very little progress. We're probably getting ready to get, give up. Now think about this. And Jesus catches up to them walking. They can't get anywhere. Jesus is walking on the water and just comes right up to them. Like, what took you so long? I'm sure he didn't say that, but that's the picture here. He just, boom, he's right there now walking on the water. The storm's not bothering Jesus at all. Think about this. Think about what they're learning about who this Jesus was that they were following. Many have tried to explain this whole walking on water miracle away over and over again and, and say he was walking by the water, not on the water, which the, the accounts in the Gospels do not allow you to come up with that conclusion. You've got to come up with some other um, idea than what they come up with saying he was just walking by the water. Because Matthew fourteen twenty four, look what it says. The boat was already a long distance from land. And, and Mark records in 647, the boat was in the middle of the sea. Does that sound like he could walk by the water? It was, it was, 
if Jesus was only walking by the water on land, they would have never seen him through the storm. It's too far away. And plus it says in verse 19 that Jesus was drawing near to them. He's right next to them. He was approaching the boat in the middle of the sea. And also in Matthew's account, which we're going to look at here in a second, Peter, it said when he sees Jesus, he, he, he gets out of the boat and walks toward Jesus, right? And he takes off his eyes off Jesus. And what happens to Peter? He begins to sink. How do you sink in this much water? You don't. Because he wasn't in this much water. He was out in the middle of the sea. Jesus was walking on the water through the storm. No problem in the middle of the sea. Verse 19 says that Jesus, uh, uh, that they saw Jesus. I love that. They saw Jesus. But we also find in this account, in Mark's account, it says, seeing them straining at their oars. Yes, they saw him. But he saw them first. And it came to them. And then they saw him. He saw them, so he went to them. And then they saw him. The truth is that Jesus, God the Son, did not abandon his disciples. Instead, he pursued them. He pursued them in the midst of the storm. Verse 19 also says that when they, they, they saw him, they were frightened. Obviously, seeing Jesus calmly walking on the water and through the storm that was beating them to death, they were frightened. In another account, in another storm, they, and they actually say, they say this about Jesus. Behold, when he calms the storm, he says, Behold, they say, Behold what manner of man is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him. And the word there, what manner of man, it's only used twice in the New Testament, another time in 1 John, Behold what manner of love is this. But this word is the Greek word, potapen. It's just a funny sounding word, I'll tell you that. But here's what it means. Of what country? This power he possesses is foreign is what they're saying. This is a, we've never seen power like this. No wonder they were frightened. Rightfully so. It was the greatest power they'd ever seen. And would ever see. To have the power over the most powerful force known to man, the sea, was shocking and frightening to them because only God could have power over the sea. And you read the Psalms, And there's quite a few psalms that talk about God has power over the seas, over the waters. The God of the universe in the flesh was pursuing them in the storm. Now, John does not record Peter walking on the water, but Matthew does. And and Peter, ever the adventuresome one, right? When you read the Gospels, Peter's always sticking his foot in his mouth. He's always stepping out there first, leading with his head, whatever. This is just Peter. He's always jumping out. And he does here. He, 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 Jesus tells him to come. So he gets out of the boat. He walks to Jesus, knowing that if Jesus had the power of the storm, he had the power to help him walk on water. And we know the account um, of what happens. Look what we see in Matthew fourteen thirty. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Now, in continuing... Instead of continuing to trust in Jesus, I mean, he had everybody gets on Peter. Oh, a little faith, Peter. It's kind of like we talk about Thomas. I think we we give Thomas a bad rap. At least he had he he had he at least had the boldness to say something, Uh, saying what everybody else was thinking in the room, really. But here, Peter, he jumps out and and he he takes eyes off Jesus. We all, man, what little faith! He's the only one who got out of the boat. You remember that? Where's the other eleven? 
At least he had the faith. And he, he at least had trusted Jesus enough to get out of the boat and begin walking. But the key here to see is that he quit trusting. He didn't continue to trust. He began to look at his circumstances. He began to look at the variables in his life. And he quit trusting. And he began to sink in the water. He quickly realized that he had placed his own placed confidence and trust in his own abilities to walk to Jesus on the water. So he cried out, Lord, save me. Then we'll look what happens in verse 31. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You have a little faith. Why did you doubt? Even though Peter showed this, this weak faith, that his faith was weak in the midst of this, Jesus still rescued him. Isn't that good news? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. It doesn't change the heart of God, our weakness in our faith sometimes. He is faithful. Peter learned the importance of continually trusting Jesus in the midst of the storm. Now turn your attention back to verses 20 and 21 of John 6, where we see Jesus come for the disciples by saying this, It is I, do not be afraid. And, and then in verse 21 it says, So they were willing to receive him into the boat. So Jesus gets into the boat, and Matthew and Mark tell us that the storm immediately stopped. He gets in the boat, it's done. Jesus' very presence brought comfort and peace to these disciples. Everything changed when he got in the boat. Notice what else happened in the rest of verse 21. And immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. Amazingly and miraculously, think about that. Immediately, the boat was at the land to where they were going. Amazing, miraculously, after struggling for three or four miles, they're there just like that. Now, some people believe this is a fourth miracle in this passage of Scripture. That the first miracle would be Jesus walked on water, then Peter walked on water. The storm suddenly stopped, and then the boat immediately gets to the other side. It's just a miracle. Boom, they're there. Now, others are not sure this is a miracle, that this is a miracle, but they believe that the disciples were so taken up with the person of Jesus and so amazed by him as he was in the boat with them that it seemed like time just passed by like that, and they were there. Regardless of exactly what it was it's amazing uh, because they were these frightened self-focused disciples had changed into jesus focused disciples they were trusting him they had been captured by the presence of god the son jesus the main point here is that jesus per, his personal presence in the storm brought great comfort and hope to the disciples they could well have thought at this point of what it said in Isaiah. They would know this passage, but now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. And the fact that he w was with them and had shown his power over the sea caused the disciples to do something else, which we find Recorded in Matthew chapter 14, verse 33. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. What's their response to what Jesus does in their midst? They worship him. They worship him. That's the proper response when Jesus shows up. 
powerfully pursuing you to bring peace in your life. Now, there's no doubt that Jesus performed this miracle for the benefit of these 12. There's no doubt of that. Uh, you can see that just from the context we spoke about that. But, but and, and just knowing that Peter cried out, you're the Holy One of God. You're the Holy One of Israel. We, 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 where would we go? But he didn't just do this for them. He did it for us too. He performed this miracle. God, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, inspired, breathed out through the Apostle John to record this particular miracle in this particular way, in this particular context, for you and I to read it now and to be comforted and be encouraged and to find hope in the midst of the storm. That's why it's there. Well, obviously, we experience storms. The cures are experiencing a storm right now. And they don't, they don't know how long. They can be long storms, intense storms, short storms. We, they don't know where, they don't have any idea what this is like right now. I mean, they're, they're, their day right now is waiting to find out how big a storm is this going to be. How long will this storm may last? They don't know. But one thing they do know is Jesus is in the storm. I want to give us these seven applications here, these seven ways that we can respond to God's word this morning concerning Jesus and your storm. Number one, understand that Jesus knowingly places you in the storm. Just as Jesus knowingly placed his disciples, said, made them get in the boat, sent them out, knowing a storm was coming, he knowingly places us in storms as well. Many people believe that any difficulties in life that come, they come from Satan, right? That's Satan doing that. Any difficulty in life comes from Satan, not God. Well, tell that to Job, who God allowed Satan to come and tempt him over and over again. Took everything in his life. God allowed that to happen. So we can't say that God was not involved, can we? Uh, tell, that to, tell that to the nation of Israel where it says over and over in the Old Testament this, God tested them. God tested them. Now, does he use different agents? Does he allow Satan to be involved in that sometimes? Yes. But to say that God is not involved at all is wrong. It's not what the Scripture teaches, because the Scripture teaches that God is absolutely sovereign, meaning he rules over all. I've heard one person say that if God is not absolutely ruling over every, and, if, and you, you scientists can correct this, but we would say an atom is pretty so, small, right? We would also say that a neutron and a proton is pretty small, right? And there's probably something smaller than that, but don't tell me now. Because that's about as far as I can think. But if he's not in control of every atom, every proton, and neutron in the world, then he is not sovereign. He is not God. That's how sovereign he is. He, he's in control of all that. Now, as we think about that, and we think, okay, what, what about this and what about that? We begin to wonder, and people begin to, oh, well, how about this? This bad thing happened. If he's in control, what kind of God is he? Hold on. He's a sovereign God. And he knowingly places us in the storm. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about God's sovereignty. I, I love this quote. I've used this. It's been a few years, but just listen to this. There's no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the, the, the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty hath ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the child, children of God ought more earnestly to contend than the dominion of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his hands, the throne of God, and his right to sit upon that throne. 
He knowingly places, the sovereign God of all the universe, knowingly places us in the midst of storms. Now the second application I want to point to helps us find hope in the sovereignty of God and not despair. And, and the second one, not only does Jesus knowingly place us in the storm, we need to embrace Jesus' purpose for us in the storm. You need to embrace Jesus' purpose for you in the storm. Just as Jesus placed the disciples in the storm for the purpose to prepare them for the life storms that were going to come, to help them work through those things, to be stronger in those, to grow in those, he does the same thing for you and I as well. There's a purpose in the storms that he places. What is his purpose? Well, it's all over Scripture. I'm just going to point to a couple of things. One of them in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing your faith produces endurance. He tells them to consider it joy. It's not <laughs> kind of thing. But deep down, knowing God is doing something, consider it all joy when, not if, you encounter various trials, knowing. Here's the key. Knowing. You know, you've got to know this. And actually, it's a present tense. They already knew this because they had been through trials before. Knowing that the test in your faith produces endurance. It grows you. It makes you more like Jesus. As we allow these, these tests, these storms, to do what God wants them to do in our life. Any of, the, any of you all ever exercised after not like exercising for six months? What happens? Not the next day after the exercise time. Of course, you go back and you try to exercise like you're 16 years old again. And some of you aren't 16 yet, but you'll understand one day. And, and you're, you can, two days later, you can hardly walk. I mean, you're like this. Why did I start this exercise, right? The lactic acids build up. Your, your, your muscles are crying out. Well, why is that? Well, when you work out... It's lactic acid does build up, but it tears muscle in order to build muscle. It tear down to build up. Pain comes for the gain, right? We all understand that. And, and, and that's the way that God works. He, he can take us through pain so we come out better on the other side. Well, not only is it, can we consider it all joy because we know he's working, right, to, to produce endurance in us, but also in Romans 8, 28 through 29, it's very, something very similar. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those that love him or are called according to his purpose. Listen to this. For, here's a purpose. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son that he would be the firstborn among the brethren. He wants to conform us to the image of his son. I'm in for that. I mean, I don't know everything there's about Jesus. I know what's in the, in the book here. And that's enough for me. To be conformed in the image of his son? He loves us. So yes, he knowingly places us in the storm, but there's a purpose. The purpose is to make us more like Jesus. The, the third life-changing application I want us to, to see this morning is be encouraged that Jesus prays for you in the storm. Jesus prays for you in the storm. Just as Jesus did not forget about the disciples, he was up on the mountain, he was praying for them in the storm. And we are told in Hebrews 7.25, Therefore, he is able to also save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is praying for his people. If you're one of his, he is praying for you. He is interceding on your behalf. Wow. How many prayers of Jesus you think go unanswered? Huh. None. I want him praying for me. And he is. In the midst of our storm, he does this. Now consider the fourth application. Know that Jesus will pursue you in the storm. Know that Jesus will pursue you in the storm. Yes, the disciples saw Jesus coming, but he saw them first, and he went after him for a, with a purpose and with a passion. He pursued 
his, his disciples. And in the same way, Jesus sees us in the midst of our storm. Remember, he placed us there, but he sees us. And he comes to us. He passionately pursues us in our storm to bring comfort, to bring peace, to bring hope, to bring encouragement. He pursues us. Fifthly, trust Jesus continually in your storm. Trust Jesus continually in your storm. This is what Peter had to learn. He didn't trust him continually. He, he got out. There was initial faith. There was a, a strong faith, obviously. But some things around him that caused him to look around and, and, and begin to trust in himself and trust in his own ability to walk on water, to walk in the midst of the storm. And often, don't we do that? We get out, we're trusting the Lord in the midst of the storm, and all these variables come. And we begin to look around, and we begin to look at ourselves. What do I have to get through the storm? Oh, I've got this, and I've got this. And we find that they're insufficient to get through the storm. We need to trust Jesus continually in the midst of our storm. Sixthly, be com comforted by Jesus' presence in the midst of the storm. Just as the, the presence, Jesus' presence comforted the disciples, the knowledge of his presence in our storms brings comfort as well. Look what it says in Hebrews 13.5. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Never, ever will he desert us. Never will he forsake us. He will be with us. His presence in the midst of the storm. There's a great song called Sometimes He Calms a Storm. Maybe you've heard that. I don't even know who sings that. Who sings that, Jared? Sometimes he calms the storm. Do you know that? Some, some group. Sometimes he calms the storm is the name of this song. Oh, I got him. Ah, all right, well, it says this. I love, this, I love this, 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 this phrase. Sometimes he calms the storm, but other times he calms his child. He doesn't always calm the storm, does he? But he always calms his child. He brings calmness. He brings peace in the midst of our storm. Seventhly, worship Jesus for his work in the storm. Worship Jesus for his work in the storm. Our response to his presence and his power in the storm is to be one of worship. Just as the disciples worshipped him here in the midst of the storm. Lips of worship and lives of worship is our response. Now remember that no matter in what storm of life you find yourself, Jesus is in your storm. He's there all the way. He's with the Kiers right now. He's in their storm. And he is working mightily. Just like Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in the fiery furnace. Should have been incinerated like that. And they're not. And Nebuchadnezzar looks in there and he sees a fourth person. One like the Son of God in the midst of this fire. Just like that. The Son of God is with you in the midst of your storm, in the midst of your fire, whatever it might be, he will be with you, comforting you, strengthening you, and making you more like Jesus. So in the midst of your storm, we think about worshiping him in the midst of our storm, cry out in faith with the words written by Horatio Spafford in the great hymn called, It Is Well With My Soul. It was written, I won't give you the whole background of what happened in his life, losing his son and all his different business ventures going crazy. He lost all of his daughters as their ship sank in the Atlantic. His wife was saved. And he got a telegra te telegram, saved alone. And as he was on a ship going over to be with his wife in England, went over, he asked the, the, the guy on the ship, he said, when we get close to where this, this ship went down, let me know. And in the midst of that, and, and thinking about that, he wrote the words of It Is Well With My Soul. It's my favorite hymn of all time. 
And, and the first verse, we're, we're going to sing it in a second, aren't we, Jerry? The first verse is this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. What enabled him to write something like that in the midst of terrible tragedy and great loss? Because he believed that Jesus was the Holy One of Israel. He believed that Jesus was in the midst of this storm, helping him and growing him for purposes beyond what he can imagine. And he's there for us, and he's there for the cures this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the hope that we find in your word. Lord, thank you that you are in the midst of our storm. And Lord, when the wind's blowing and howling and the waves are high and, and it seems like there's no hope, Lord, you show up and reveal yourself that you've always been in the storm to grow us, to make us more like Jesus. And Lord, that's our hope for all of us this morning. Lord, I know there's people here going through all kinds of storms, little, big, long. Lord, I pray you'd meet them where they are and bring them hope and healing. Lord, I pray for the cures again right now. Lord, I pray. I even got to talk to Danny about this passage this morning. Um, Lord, I pray that they are encouraged and their heart is trusting in you. Lord, help them continually trust in Jesus in the midst of the storm. That you might be glorified, that your purposes would be revealed and they would come about in their life. Lord, help us encourage them in the midst of the storm. What great news we have to share. What great news we have to hold on to. We're your mercy to give us the power to do so. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior in the midst of the storm. Amen.